This morning, we are continuing in our series titled, If My People. And it's a series where we're taking, we're, we're kind of just, it's kind of cherry picking, really. But it's, it's taking these, these stories, these moments in uh, the book of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, and it's finding out how they relate to prayer and how they relate to this idea uh, that we find. You can go to the next slide. There's this promise that God gives to King Solomon about the nation of Israel, uh, and he, he says this to Solomon. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And last week, well, I'll get to that in a second. So you can go to the next slide. We have been in the series only two weeks. We only have two more, including today. And so I'm excited for all that we're going to, to learn together. The first week we talked about God's presence making all the difference. We talked about how uh, when King Solomon, he was the one who built the temple to the Lord. He had been commissioned uh, by his father David, and everything had been prepared so that he could build the temple. Everything was complete, and they brought the, brought the Ark of the Covenant into the house of the Lord, and the whole place was filled with a cloud, and just the glory of the Lord was there, and it was so thick and tangible, the pastors couldn't even give a sermon. I mean, nobody could sing a song, nothing was, they weren't able to do anything because God was there, and it was like God stole the show. Uh, and <laughs> uh, not that God steals anything, but here we go. So God's presence makes all the difference. And really how, you know, just as God's presence defined the temple, God's presence defines us and defines our lives, uh, whether that means that we're in right standing with His presence or not. Last week, we covered the passage where that, that Scripture comes from, Second Chronicles 7, and the big idea we explored was prayer is the means by which we experience God's life-changing grace. And within that passage, there's really, there's a blessing and a curse that's given. So he, God, He affirms to Solomon, yes, this is my house. I am making my name known here forever. And then he goes into this, you know, this long explanation of when, when I shut up the heavens, when I cause locusts to come and devour your crop, and when, you know, all kinds of pestilence happens, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and all of that. And then he goes on to talk about how, you know, Solomon, if you... Now, for you, here's all the people, but now let's just talk about you for a moment. If you follow me in the ways of your father David with your whole heart, keeping my commands and my statutes, you, I will keep my covenant with David, and there will always be a king in Israel from your line. Well, uh, and then, so then he gives the, you know, so there's the blessing, but then there's the curse part of it where he says, and if you reject me, if you abandon that, then I'm going to pluck you out of the land. And then people are going to walk by the temple and say, what happened? Well, you know, 
God's people worshipped here? What happened? And it, was, it would be like a bad reputation, the shame and the guilt that would come, and people would, God's name wouldn't be revered in that place. So anyway, so that's where we've been. Today, you can go to the next slide. We're going to um, talk about, uh, we're going to fast forward a couple hundred years <laughs> into the future from Solomon, and we're going to talk about the process of holiness. Um, that might be a trigger for some of you, and that's okay. We're going to talk more about that. But the process of holiness, and the passage we're going to be looking at is Second Chronicles 34 verses 1 through 21. There's a typo there on the slide. And the big idea that we're going to look at is loving God is a wholehearted, lifelong pursuit. Loving God is a wholehearted, lifelong pursuit. And so, uh, you can go to the next slide. We're going to talk about, we're going to unpack just the title for a second. So, there's process and then there's holiness. So, in the Bible, God, He gives this command to His people in Leviticus 19, and it shows up a few other places in the Old Testament where He says to Moses, He says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So he's basically saying, okay, because I am holy, you are to also be holy. Now, what does that word holy mean? We'll talk about that in a sec. That gets repeated in the New Testament by the Apostle Peter when he wrote a letter to the church, and it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, God, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And this feels like an impossible task because when we think about God and His holiness, that is such a radiant idea. It would be like <clears throat> the idea of… I'm not sure I understand. Oh, come on, Siri. Don't talk to me right now. I'm preaching. Here we go. So, so like, think about radiant heat, like when you have a stovetop right? And you turn on the burner. And so the coil, it burns like just red hot red, right? And when you put your hand just over it, you can feel the warmth of that, of that thing. And as you get closer, if you're not the temperature of the burner, it's going to burn you <laughs> because it is just so hot and, and radiant. Now, in relation to God's holiness, for us, for us to approach God and His holiness as people who we're not perfect, we're not, uh, we, you know, we're actually flawed in, in our makeup because of sin. And so when we approach holiness, it's like me and my nice 98.6 degrees trying to put my hand on that burner, I'm going to get scalded, right? That, well, anyway, so... With holiness, what is holiness? The, the, the trait, the attribute of holiness 
is to be unique and distinct, set apart. And so for God and His holiness, we can, we can wrap our minds a little bit around how, okay, God, He is wholly other than any other being in the universe. He, he's completely different than, than all of that. Uh, even within our world today, those who, who, you know, subscribe to any kind of a faith, they have some kind of a grasp of there is the divine and then there is the common. Now, what's interesting about the Bible is that holiness as a trait of God is something that He means to share with us. There are certain attributes we can't share. I can't be all-knowing, believe it or not. I can't be all-powerful, even though my kids think I'm strong, you know. I can't be everywhere present because, well, that would be awesome, but also scary. But, you know, I, I can't share certain attributes, but holiness is something that God seems to think that we can share that trait with Him, that He can share that trait with us, and that we can be holy as He is holy. So, for the people of Israel, that's who they were called to be. They were supposed to be set apart from all the other nations. They were supposed to be this beacon of light and hope to the nations around them. They were supposed to be distinct in everything they did, down to the clothes that they wore. And everybody dogs them for that in Leviticus. But, you know, even down to those finest, minute details, they were supposed to be different. But that's not what they wanted. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And so as time progressed from these moments in, you know, the early years of conception of the nation of Israel, time and time again, the people would step out of line and not, not in, well, yeah, in rebellion. Um, and they would end up turning away from the Lord. They would end up abandoning him and rejecting him and then wonder why their, their lives were in such turmoil and chaos. And so that's why God gave that promise that, hey, guys, if you humble yourselves and turn to me, look to me and, and pray, then I'm going to hear you and I'm going to actually extend my hand and you will be healed and, and I will forgive you of your sin. And and so, how this all relates to holiness is that it didn't just start from the people. It also started, have you, have, words, have you ever heard of the idea of like top down, how like everything kind of rolls downhill? Anyway, um, that was true for the nation of Israel. So, you know, as the king went, so the country went. So, uh, you can go to the next slide. Yes, Okay. So the map on your, on your left, okay, that, that is kind of a picture, it is a picture of the nation of Israel as a whole under King Saul and King David, a united kingdom where eventually by the end of King David's reign, everybody was together and everybody was cooperating with each other and they were moving forward together. Solomon becomes king. We've talked about Solomon a bit. And with Solomon, um, things started really, really good. 
but he had a thing for the ladies. And, um, you know, Scripture tells us that he had, I think, 300 wives and 700 concubines, or maybe that number might be flip-flopped, but that he really had a thing for the ladies. That's why he wrote Song of Songs. Um, but some of you know. Uh, so anyway, so with King Solomon, the trouble with all of that is just as God saw ahead of things, that Solomon married not just, you know, uh, Israelite wives, but he married foreign wives. And they led his heart away from the Lord. So he didn't completely walk in the commands and the statutes of the Lord and walking in the way of his father, David. And so um, he was told that, okay, because of David, I'm not going to do things in your lifetime, but the nation is going to split and I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and your line in the next generation. While that happened, uh, his son Rehoboam really messed up. And um, someday I'll do a sermon on Rehoboam, and it'll be great. But, um, but you know, he really, he royally messed up, and no pun intended, but he did that. And so the northern ten tribes, they decided, we're out of here, we're gone, we're not going to do this. And then all that was left was uh, Judah and I think Benjamin were the two that were together in the south in the kingdom of Judah. And so then the, that leads us to the map on the right, which you get the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, what's really fascinating, I love just the way the English language works, is that the northern kingdom of Israel, a really great way to think about and understand uh, the character of the kings of Israel and Judah is that the northern kingdom had no good kings. Nobody walked in the ways of the Lord. Nobody, even, like, they, they were all wicked. And, but the southern kingdom, you know, they, they didn't get out unscathed, but they had some good kings. So northern kingdom and no good kings. Southern kingdom, some. Somebody put, pointed that out to me, and I thought it was brilliant. So that helps us understand. Now, why all of this has anything to do with what we're talking about today is that we are talking about a guy named Josiah, and he became king right after what God had said came true, where the northern kingdom had become so wicked and so... Uh, wrong that God sent them into exile and they got sacked by the Assyrians in 721 BC. And so following that, Judah was in its own hot mess of things and Josiah becomes king at the age of eight. And I was thinking this week, that is staggering. I've always thought that's staggering and it became more staggering to think that my son Reuben is eight. I would not trust Reuben <laughs> to lead the country of Judah. And yet, you know, the people, they chose Josiah. And what <laughs> was unique about Josiah, not only his age of coming 
to be king, but it's that his dad did what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And his grandpa did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. More at that point in the story, more than any other king had been in Judah up until that point, things went from bad to worse to just flat out awful with Manasseh, his grandpa. And yet Josiah is a different king. Josiah does something different. Now, all of that gives us the context for what we're about to read today. Uh, you can go to the next slide. Yes, okay. One, nope, nope, we're not going to go there. Cool, awesome, great. Let's turn to, uh, together to Second Chronicles chapter 34. Um, if you'd like, you can follow along on the screen uh, with me. Uh, or you can also look in your Bible as well. Next slide, next slide, next slide, and the next one. Here we go. All right. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them, and he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. He had a plan. Okay, now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah the priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnants of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord, and the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set 
Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam, and the sons of the Kohathites, to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service, and some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. While they were bringing out the money that they had brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes, and the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Azaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. All right. In all honesty, it's been hard to try to capture the idea of the life of Josiah. Um, some people use the word reformation or reforming of the people. Um, the reason I use process is because this did not happen overnight. Um, there were some people who uh, were raised up from among the people of Israel and Judah over the years to kind of clean house and to do this big, huge reset kind of thing. But usually when it happened in one of those just distinct moments, and it was like maybe two or three days worth of just a bloodbath of just resetting everything, it, it was just that. It was a bloodbath. And not only that, but it was usually incomplete. And so what I find so fascinating about the life of Josiah and his approach with the Lord is that he started with redirecting his devotion to the Lord. He didn't immediately remove the high places. He didn't immediately remove all the different things, but he started with him for himself, just his devotion to the Lord. He directed it to God. And as far as a process of holiness in redirecting, you know, the idea that I get from this is the process of holiness redirects faithful devotion. Josiah had the example of his dad and his grandpa 
who worshipped the Baals. They were uh, a kind of, uh, you know, local deity that wasn't the God of Israel. Um, a fertility one. Also, there was another one called Asherah, and uh, they worshipped them as well. And there was all kinds of stuff that went into their forms of worship, one being uh, child sacrifice um, for the sake of a successful crop and, and that kind of thing. And so Josiah, at the age of eight, probably with some influence from a very good, wise mentor, and unlike Rehoboam, he listened to him, he decides, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to think back to David, and I'm going to follow the Lord like David would. And so he started that way. And so I have this picture up here of, uh, of this person walking. They're in some really trendy hipster jeans and some nice boots. And what got cropped out of the picture is this really groovy backpack. But so they're walking down this path, and it makes me think about how so when you're, when you're going down a path, there is kind of a contrast between a well-worn path and one that's maybe it hasn't been walked on in a while. And usually grass starts to reappear in certain places, and, um, and the places that usually have been well-worn or walked, they, they tend to be the, the flat brown part, right? Um, we all hope for trails like that. <laughs> um, now, how that relates to Josiah, to me, is he was almost having to, like, you know, chop down some brush that had grown up around this path that he was trying to walk in faithfulness to the Lord because his family hadn't been doing that. They'd been you know, erecting all these images of these other gods and goddesses and worshiping them and, you know, practicing all kinds of wickedness with that, uh, that devotion to them. And so it was a hard correct for Josiah to choose and determine himself, I'm going to focus on the Lord. I'm not going to turn to the right. I'm not going to turn to the left. I'm going to focus on the God of my people, the God of my father, David. Interestingly enough, I, and I didn't look in, in the original languages too deep on this, but it's fascinating that, at least in our English translations, there is a difference between the beginning of the passage where it says the God of his father, David, and by the end, it's Josiah's God. It's somebody who Josiah has been following for so many years that through this process of holiness and setting himself apart from the kings who had been before and setting himself apart for the Lord, that it goes from, this is just the God of my people, this is my, my dad's religion, or not his dad's religion, but, you know, this is what I should do to, no, I actually, this is something that I, I own for myself, my faith is my own. Now, how all that relates to our big idea of loving God is a wholehearted, lifelong pursuit is that it had to start somewhere. And 
that description of, you know, being so laser focused that he didn't turn to the right or to the left, that means that he went all in on this devoting himself to the Lord. And I wonder for us, as we are, you know, in a part of our 21 days of fasting and prayer, or even if you're not and you're just, you know, visiting with us and um, this is your first time and that's great, you know, for us, as we, as we think about God and we think about what He might want for our lives, are, are there areas or are there, there things that maybe God is trying to get us in place so that we're redirected to where we're not just faithfully devoting ourselves to some other thing, we're actually rightly putting our faith and our devotion in Him. You can go to the next slide. So, the second thing I see in our passage is that the process of holiness, it removes all ties with idolatry. I didn't know how to do some clever alliteration with completely decimating things, because I don't know if you picked up on that, but I mean, there were some of those idols that he just, he ground into powder and then scattered them on the graves of the priests of Baal and Ashtoreth. And so, oh, he was, I mean, wholehearted devotion to the Lord. He was cleaning house. He wasn't leaving no stone unturned, and he was making sure that all idolatry in the nation was gone. And what's unique about that is if you were to read through all of Chronicles up until that point, there may have been a king who was devoted to the Lord, where that description is, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David did, but no other king like Josiah had completely removed the places of worship and cleaned those places you know, breaking down their altars, because in most of those stories, it says they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and yet they didn't tear down the high places, the places where they would go to worship these other gods and goddesses. So, this makes me think about the wisdom of Solomon, ironically, in Song of Songs, where it's this great picture of um, uh, you know, this lover and the beloved who are in this romantic, passionate relationship together. And there's this part where one of them says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. And so, think about kind of the fragility of a crop and specifically with grapes and a vineyard, um, while, you know, the, the roots and the trunk and everything, yeah, the vine, uh, is, um, is usually pretty formidable and nice and strong, the fruit that's on the end, it's pretty fragile and can easily get trampled. It can easily be eaten by, by any kind of animals or that kind of deal. And this becomes an image in our lives for the things that steal, kill, and destroy the good that's in our lives. Like in a relationship, when things crop up, whether that's, a, you know, some kind of a habit or a hang-up, or, or maybe somebody is 
um, in the relationship is, you know, doing something wrong, it, or or maybe things are just growing apart where the little foxes take on, you know, the name workplace or job or career, or maybe, you know, it's some form of media that you consume, or maybe it's some kind of, you know, thing that gets between you and your beloved. And this, this moment of just wonderful wisdom from Solomon is he recognizes that you got to get rid of those foxes, those things that are going to steal away the produce and the good that is in that relationship. Now, how all that applies to our relationship with the Lord, how that all applies to here in this passage with Josiah, is that Josiah, not only had he devoted himself to the Lord, but he saw the condition of his people, and he saw what was wrong. And he wasn't going to stand for it anymore. And so, because of his position of authority, what he could do is he could say, okay, guys, we're going to clean house. We're going to make sure that this is all wiped out so that we can make clear everything so that we can all rightly worship the Lord and no one else. He was killing the foxes, catching them, and removing them from the vineyard, so to speak. He was removing all ties with idolatry. In yours and my life, not only does this work on that interpersonal level, like we have with, uh, you know, between our spouses, right? But it works between us and the Lord. Are there things that are coming between you and the Lord that are like little foxes that are stealing away the good that God means to have in your life? If so, proverbially, spiritually, get a shotgun and remove that fox from the vineyard. Make sure he's out of there, right? Make sure that there is nothing standing between you and the Lord. Because if God is revealing to you by the Holy Spirit, He's reminding you, He's coming, you know, bringing it to mind that there is this thing between us and Him, that means that that thing isn't supposed to be there. There's supposed to be nothing between us and Him because He's made a way where there was no way by His blood. For us to be with him and in covenant relationship with him. So, friends, family, new friends and family, I, I just want to submit to you, I know that it's hard because I know that there have been times in my life, whether it's between my wife and I or between me and the Lord, that there have been foxes in my vineyard that I have let run rampant way too long. And that decision to remove them is really hard, but it's worth it. Because loving God is a wholehearted, lifelong pursuit. That means I can't be offer half of my heart to the Lord and half of my heart to be stolen away by whatever is wreaking havoc by all these little foxes doing their thing. That shouldn't even be there anyway. And I'm purposely speaking vague because, friends, there are things in your life, probably too many things in this whole room for us to talk about that could be that proverbial little fox 
that is so sneaky and so insidious and just gets right in there to steal away the good. And God's best for you is to take that fox out of there so that there's no more tie with idolatry, so that everything is clear, the path is clear, so that you can just have direct access to Him again, so you don't have to be clouded by any other influence that way, like the people of Israel. And so, the process of holiness, being set apart to the Lord in this life, it's not, sometimes there are these moments that are instantaneous, boom, they're a milestone, they're a waypoint, and yet it takes a lifetime for us to see how far we've gone with the Lord on this journey with Him. You can go to the next slide. I need to start wrapping this, this baby up. There are a lot of verses that encapsulate this idea because there's a lot of work that once once he had devoted, Josiah had devoted himself to the Lord, and then after he had, you know, cleaned house and done all of that, the process of holiness unreservedly restores for intimacy. It unreservedly restores for intimacy. The, the house of the Lord had fallen into disrepair. The kings hadn't actually done the work to make sure that the house of the Lord was in right standing and doing okay and, you know, a place where people could actually come and worship Him. And so, Josiah, he says, hey, guys, there's some money in the treasury. How about you go hire some people, tell the priests to do that, and restore the temple. Restore the place where there's supposed to be that meeting place between God and His people. That's that, that place of intimacy with the Lord. That's even, for you and I, it's not always coming to a house like this although that, that is the case as well. It can be in your own life building up patterns and, and things and ways of, of devoting your life to the Lord that need to be rebuilt. And I would submit to you that we need to go wholehearted in that pursuit to restore that intimacy with the Lord because that's what He did for us. You know, we're just a few moments away from participating in communion together, and um, through those simple elements, we, we remember what Jesus did on the cross. Son of God, God incarnate, lived a perfect life as a human, went to the cross for our sake, took all the weight of our sin and shame on himself without reserve, gave himself for us at the cross. And so that makes me wonder for my own life and maybe even for you with this idea of a process of holiness. And if you get caught up in the jargon, don't worry about that. The whole point is loving God. If there's anything that is, you know, standing in the way of you loving the Lord, you need to take a look at that. And you need to, and I need to, make some decisions. For Josiah, he made just the big decision to say, 
we're going to spend all the money to make sure that the house of the Lord is okay and that we can go and meet with Him. For, for you and I, are we willing to count the cost that is in our own life of like, okay, I'm going to carve out that time or maybe I'm going to for some of us, like with this, this prayer and fasting thing that we're doing, it's saying, okay, God, I'm taking the next 21 days, and without reserve, I am cutting this whole thing out of my life so that I can focus on you, whether that's skipping a meal or, you know, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's giving up social media, which I did not realize how hard it would be. I've never done this. And so it's like uh, when Angie's scrolling through Facebook, I'm like, <laughs> what's going on in the world? Um, I miss the fact that one of my favorite guitar players uh, this, this, uh, this week passed away from this bizarre bacterial thing that was going on. And so it's like, you know, it, there was, there's a cost involved, and yet I wouldn't trade this last week for the world because there's been a lot of freedom from that. And there's been a, a restoration of some of those places of intimacy between me and the Lord. And I would love for that to be the same for you. And one of the ways that we can do that is through coming to the table and, and taking the, the elements of communion together by remembering Jesus, who gave his life to make us holy as he is holy. Let's pray.